Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. Monheimmicrophones.com. In 1943, founder William Green purchased McCoy Feed and Coal Company, and Primex Garden Center was born. Primex Garden Center is now in its fourth generation of green family ownership. They offer a wide selection of organic and conventional garden solutions, in addition to two fully stocked tropical houseplant greenhouses, along with annuals, perennials, trees, and shrubs. As the gardener's resource since 1943, Primex seeks to nurture both plants and people through quality, care, compassion, and community. Making your lives greener makes theirs brighter. Primex Garden Center is located at 435 West Glenside Avenue in Glenside, Pennsylvania. This podcast is being recorded on April 21st, 2023. Jeff Lowenfelds is a humorous and entertaining lecturer. He is a reformed lawyer and author of Timber Press's award-winning and best-selling books, Teeming with Microbes, The Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web, and Teeming with Nutrients, The Organic Gardener's Guide to Optimizing Plant Nutrition, and completing the trilogy, Teeming with Fungi, The Organic Grower's Guide to Mycorrhiza. And another book he wrote is Teeming with Bacteria, The Organic Gardener's Guide to Endophytic Bacterium. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Jeff. We're delighted you could be with us today. Well, it's awfully good to be here and nice to see you after all these years of COVID absences. Absolutely. It's just a delight. And I want to jump right in here with the article that appeared in the New York Times Magazine Mm -hmm. on July 28th, 2021. And if if anybody that's listening would like to take a look at that article when you have a chance, you're going to see that it says, he wrote a gardening column. He ended up documenting climate change. Wow. I get goosebumps every time I read that title. (laughs) Jeff, can you give us a little bit about the articles that you write for the Anchorage newspaper? Sure. Yeah, I write for the Anchorage Daily News. Uh, I call myself America's longest-running garden columnist because I've been doing it for, I think I'm on 47 years now. And I don't miss a week because if they they push a picture in the paper and they say he's on vacation, and to me that always means 
rob his house, he's not home. So I always have a column and they're weekly columns and they're basically what you should be doing in your garden. Now, you know me, obviously a lot of this stuff is laced with heavy duty science, soil food web, kvetching about miracle grow, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'm an extremely organic uh, gardener and I'm dragging all of Alaska with me uh, because I'm really the only garden columnist up there. And the the columns have been very useful to me as well as obviously to Alaskans. And one day a guy calls me up and says, you know, I've been reading your columns all my life. My mother is a big fan. Can I come over and, and get some of your old ones? And I, I had them all. I gave him a whole box. He took them off to someplace on the East Coast and Two years later, there was that article. I mean, and it was just like a, a shocker. But it makes sense to me for, for a simple reason. If you're writing a garden column about what you should be doing every week, invariably, you run into phenology, the biological processes that happen every year, basically at the same time. And sometimes you can compare one biological process's occurrence with the arrival of another biological process. So, for example, in Alaska, We know that when the birch leaves reach the size of a squirrel's ear, we will not get any more frosts until the fall. And that's a phenology kind of thing. And I always mention that. uh, Oh, look, the birch leaves are out. It's time. So there's always a connection to climate if you're really into what people should be doing every week. I like that squirrel's ear analogy. That's great because... Yeah, I'm hoping it's in my obituary when I die. He's the guy, (laughs) because I'll I'll go around to people and they'll say to me, oh, I noticed that the leaves are the size of a squirrel's ear. Did you know you can plant now? (laughs) I go, hey, I I invented that phrase. That's exactly right. So, Jeff, let me ask you this. Yeah. We were chatting prior to going live here and and also reading your background that there came a point when you were writing these columns where, I guess, an epiphany of sorts of, whoa, chemicals have to go away. Right. We need to embrace right. uh, organic approaches. And uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Sure. Well, even may know, but, but I have a long association with miracle Grow. Uh, my father and grandfather hired this young man uh, out, of, out of University of Pennsylvania to be his advertising, their advertising executive. And he instantly took a dislike to selling butter because it's all the same. And he would spend his weekends looking for places to clear his mind. And he ran into the guy that had the miracle Grow formula. He went into business with him, came into my father and grandfather. And he said, I love you guys. But I don't like the butter business. I'm going to go sell Miracle Grow. And of course, the rest is history. What people don't realize is that he put my picture on my <laughs> family's butter uh, margarine package, Happy Boy Margarine. You can look it up. It's it's still on it, if you believe it. We don't own the company anymore. But I became quite the disciple of Miracle Grow because my father had a great relationship with this guy. And I remember distinctly meeting him at the Garden Writers. He came. Uh, he recognized that I was the Lowenfels, and he apologized for telling the story about how he got into Miracle Grow. And we became great friends. And he would come up to Anchorage, and he would run ads and commercials, and uh, they would play on the on the uh, uh, Super Bowl. And you know, I'd go, "Hey, it's my property there." You know, it was kind of fun. Um, and then one day, uh, I ran into Dr. Elaine Ingham's work and discovered the soil food web, and realized that I was wrong. Horace was wrong. These chemicals are not good. And that was the beginning of a journey that that continues today. Just yesterday, I read a, a phenomenal article about glyphosate and how it impacts 
something that I've been writing about, bacteria and rhizophagy. And it's a constant education because we are constantly studying these terrible chemicals that we've forced ourselves to use. Yeah, I think I had the same exciting awakening with Dr. Ingham myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. as best I could as an arborist, tried to apply the principles of uh, soil food web to caring for large trees and right, had some right. fun innovations with yeah. that. So, Yeah, so I went completely organic and I dragged my readers with me. And in Anchorage, Alaska, there used to be, you know, maybe a, a little small shelf of organic products at the, at the nurseries. Now it's two aisles long. You can hardly find the chemical stuff. It's really been a, quite the change in and, uh, you know, I, I don't take the credit for it. I mean, this has been a big organic wave uh, washing across our country, particularly among gardeners. And, but it's, it's really quite astonishing and very, very important. Plants don't discern the difference between, when I, they don't discern the difference between the actual elemental, the elements of that, what they're pulling up, but they do discern the difference between what happens around the root system. And that is where the big problem comes in. And by upsetting that mycorrhiza and that association with bacteria and mycorrhiza, you actually hurt the plant. Sure. And I, and I want to point that out because there might be some pushback here, but I think that we have gone so far that we do know so much and we can't ignore it anymore. There's no pushback that's le that's right anymore. I mean, this is just craziness. Right. To, to, to suggest that somebody should be putting food in their system that contains chemicals, that was grown with chemicals. We've got lower density of nutrients in our food because of the chemicals that we use. And most important, the soil structure is being completely destroyed around the world as a result of it. And so we need to... We need to be doing stuff properly and, and chemicals as clearly. And anybody can argue with me all you want. I'll fight with you to the death. They are not what we should be using, particularly as gardeners. I mean, it's just completely foolish. Every time you spray something, the drift is two or three miles. Even dandelions, frankly, uh, have won the war as far as I'm concerned. Let them be. There's nothing you can do. And the fact that you have to apply those pesticides every or herbicides every single spring should indicate to you that you've lost the war. <laughs> Why are we always fighting them? You know, they don't go away. Just yesterday, I was reading an, uh, a little article from our colleague, uh, Doug Oster in Pittsburgh. And he said, don't kill off your dandelions. He said, I used to pull them out. He said, now I say, once they're done, ready to throw out their seed, cut off the top and let them spring back. And that's when the leaves are the best mm -hmm. for eating because they're so delicious and they're not that nice. bitter. They don't have nice. that bitter taste when, they, when they're in blue. So I thought to myself, oh, this is great. <laughs> this is great information. You'd have to eat a lot. Eat a lot of yeah. them. Though, in my, I got eight acres. Of, you know, I got a lot of lawn. But, but, but the deal is, uh, and I've noticed incidentally when we had our last Garden Writers Conference, most of us, if the lawn was completely green with no weeds, we wouldn't walk on it. I mean, it's just that that's simple. exactly we, right. We no longer have at our garden writer meetings the chemical companies because we weren't visiting them when they came the last time. And so it's really been a, a, a sea change. But but more important, you end up when you use the soil food web being a better gardener and it's easier. It's easier once you apply the soil food web because the microbes end up doing the work. And we're learning again so much more. We've advanced so far beyond uh, what Dr. Elaine taught us because of new microscopy and because people are using new staining techniques. And so now we've got a whole new branch of the soil food web that nobody even knew about 
that enables gardeners to utilize it in a way to make themselves better gardeners. So it's, you know, when you use a chemical, most people don't read the labels. They're not used properly. They're hurting themselves as well as the soil and the plants. Soil food web, it's just such a nice, simple, safe way to go. Jeff, what's your opinion? Uh, I think the last time I was in a workshop with Dr. Ingham, she was mm -hmm. thumbs down on bottled, you know, biostimulants, bottled kelp and such. Uh, she yeah. felt like they weren't going to be able to deliver enough living organism. And that was several years ago. So I'm wondering if you sure. have an opinion on that. Yeah, I do. I mean, it depends on what product it is. And, and what I do is I use this very simple test called a microbiometer test. If your listeners want to go to www.microbiometer.com. This is a very interesting kit developed by a woman who had a background in filtering and testing blood. And she figured out a way that you can use your cell phone and for five bucks, shake a little reagent that comes in their kit with a little soil in it, and it'll give you your biomass reading. Biomass, how much biology, basically, you know, the microbes are in your soil. And if the number is at a certain level, you don't really need to feed them. If it goes up after you make an application, then you know that product is teeming with microbes. If it stays the same, then you know you don't need it, or maybe it's not working, one or the other. So I test. And there are a lot of products out there that, you know, you think, oh, this must be great. You know, and then you, then you look at right. the label and it's got very, very little in it, or you put it into your pail of water and it dilutes it so much that it couldn't possibly help. But you got to test. That's, that's basically the bottom line. That, that's good advice. I want to ask real quick, is it worth asking about AL? He sounds like he was a, quite the influence on you gardening-wise. Yeah, he was. Uh, both my father and my grandfather, A.L. the Butterman, uh, Albert Lowenfels, my grandfather, he lived on uh, 12 acres in White Plains, New York. And I think in order to pay the taxes, he sold tomato plants every spring. He was a gardener's gardener. And he wow. grew everything on his property. And and oh, my God. And his my grandmother would tell these stories about, oh, my God, my friend just got put in jail for two, two for a weekend for speeding. If only that could happen to me, I wouldn't have to have the water boiling before the corn is picked, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so so <laughs> my father, of course, picked up all of this stuff. And we lived on an eight acre gentleman's farm. And my father would come home from New York City, put his old shoes on, and we would garden. And if you wanted to be around my father, you garden. Uh, and he picked that That's up great. from AL. So gardening is one of those immortal things that you can pass on. And uh, I'll see a plant. I'll think of my grandmother. Uh, you know, I'll stick my hand in the soil. I'll think of my grandfather. It's just a, a terrific, wonderful thing. Lovely. There were three articles that you wrote that seemed to change how we think and move through the environment. And you were right on the global global warming issue early on, I think probably earlier than many, many, many people out there, if not one of the first. And it was in December 6, 2002, we could adopt a new state motto in place of North to the Future, substituting global warming. It's our turn now. And right. I thought that was stunning. That was stunning yeah. to think about what was happening up in Alaska at that time. And another one on November 14th, 2003, what a treat to see potentilla, pansies, and even petunias in bloom. These have not been bad replacements for snow at the end of October. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, or, I mean, already we, we know it's getting warmer and you're not getting your first frost until much right. later, which is right. so crazy. Yeah. And then the last one I want to read, and then I would like to hear your comments on July 21st, 2005. Even if you are not a gardener, surely you have noticed that the fireweed traditionally at mid to late August bloomer is almost spent and it's only the third week of July. It's global warming and it's our turn now. At least you will have a nice green lawn, right? Yeah, well, I can't take credit for that phrase. That's my business partner, Wayne Lewis. But boy, oh boy, it is true. When you live in Alaska, this is Alaska is noted to be the canary in, in you know in the in the coal in mine. the coal mine. We are clearly getting warmer. When when they first started to take records in in uh, Talkeetna, Alaska, which is about an hour away from Anchorage, hour and a half away, they had uh, I think about a sixty or sixty five day growing season. This was in eighteen seventies. Today, our growing season is well over one hundred and thirty days. I mean, you can say anything you want about global warming. That is the bottom line. We've more than doubled our growing season. That's global warming, folks. And whether it's caused by man or whether it's caused by nature, it doesn't make a bit of difference. The plants recognize it. And it causes some problems. On the other hand, uh, you know, as an Alaskan, wow, it can be really a joy to have a fluke warm day in the middle of the winter where People go out and actually mow their lawn. That's happened once or twice. Uh, On Christmas Day, we've had temperatures warmer than Hawaii some days. I mean, it's really been an unbelievable thing. Now, don't get me wrong. This was the worst winter I've ever lived through. We had snow that just stayed on the ground the entire time. So, you know, we get these extremes, but, you know, it's it's definitely trending much warmer. So it's nice that you have been the chronologist in this whole process for Alaska since you started your column and have an example for the community that, yes, we have changed and we are continuing to change. Yeah. Well, I t- there's one, one other reason why that happened, and that is because I used to drive my kids to school and I would make them write down the weather and a little comment. You know, so my son would say, Lisa's a jerk. Fifty-two degrees today. You know, I mean, it's, it's Lisa's <laughs> sister. You know, what I mean? but but so I have all of these calendars with the with the temperatures and whatnot, and and it's really it's it's just an amazing thing. I, and I should say that Al the butter man was a weather guy. He had all these weather instruments, barometers, and moisture meters, and everything else. And so weather is something I I just sort of naturally like anyway. And I think most gardeners pay attention to the weather anyway. Absolutely. So let's talk about trees. Tell us everything you know about tree culture in Alaska. (laughs) I I see that you have been talking about spruce. What what kind of spruce and how's it doing up there? Yeah, we have a black spruce, uh, you know, that basically is the core tree. All of our forests are spruce trees. And it has been going through cycles as a result of attacks by, by bark beetles. And the thought is that what's happening is we are getting earlier thaws. Now, we still have a thaw and then a frost, thaw, frost. So we have these freeze-thaw cycles, but they're beginning earlier and they're longer, the thaw. So the plant comes alive, the roots start doing their thing, and then it freezes again. And so you get a little bit of root pruning, you know, the trees begin to suffer. And lo and behold, we've had probably, I've been there about 47, 48 years, We've had at least two big cycles of deaths of trees. Now, 
originally it was out in the in the forests outside of the where people lived. This last one is going on right now, and it's hitting the big spruce trees that are in the residential neighborhoods, mm. and it is causing quite the stir. You know, we talk about global warming, and and people can react to global warming, but when it hits a tree that's blocking your view from the na- your neighbor, and you've got to cut that tree down because it's dead, it impacts you in a way like you've never been impacted. And so we're having that problem in Anchorage. And uh, these are big trees. We're talking 50, 60 foot trees with, uh, you know, maybe uh, three, four feet diameter, some of them. And and so it's very upsetting. I went to a friend's house, been going to this guy's house literally for 45 years. And we first time ever sat outside in his backyard and had a picnic. Didn't Could never do it before. It was too shady. <laughs> there were tree limbs everywhere. No trees in his yard anymore. Whoa. So the question has become, what do we do? We've, we've got a problem. How do we deal with this problem in a sensible way? And it's been, it's been a really interesting education. We had a meeting. We called in all of the state and federal experts, worked for the government agencies. We called in all of the landscaping people, anybody who had any touch in this area. And we debated the question, do we, do we find a new tree and introduce it? Or do we use the same tree because the young the young trees don't get hit? It's the older trees that get hit. And would we be making a mistake in not replacing the existing spruce with new spruce that A, may have adapted better, or B, are going to live 40, 30, 40 years anyway, maybe? So we're just sort of in that phase right now. But the advice is put the spruce back, and that's what we're doing. We're very leery about bringing in invasive trees. We want to be very careful. Well, I know that here in our region, we have a real issue with spruce as well. Our spruce, I was taking a walk just yesterday, and I walked past at least 10 houses that had skeletal spruce trees. There was nothing left on them, just standing there bare. Right. And there were three different types. It was, you know, the Colorado spruce, the red spruce, and there was some white spruce, and they were all needleless. Let me and, let me stop you. Let me stop you right there. Before they dropped their needles, you can bet many of those homeowners sprayed those trees, injected those trees, and tried to kill off the beetle. And that's another debate that we had. Should we be trying to eradicate the beetle or should we avoid these chemicals? and just let nature do its thing. It was a very heated debate. Mm. And I think you're right. Um, We don't have the beetle problem as much as we have uh, needle cast disease. And Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. is something that people are treating for. And one of my clients has hers being treated for needle cast. But the idea of losing so many different species in our area, we have moved up other species from the South that may be more vulnerable up into our area as assisted migration. And we're not getting the evergreen. We're getting another type of plant altogether, but we're trying to replace these holes in the landscape. Right. Well, we're so far away. uh, I mean, literally, we're closer to Tokyo in Anchorage than we are at Washington, D.C. And, and, you know, you have to jump such a long distance. We're very, very leery about bringing in new new trees. Sure. Uh, Sure. In fact, the guy that wrote that uh, article for the New York Times wrote a book about this whole issue of moving trees and and what what goes on in it. It's, it's 
we've got a real problem. We've got to figure it all out and, and put the pieces together. But but in Anchorage right now, we're, we're sort of treading water. We're putting in the old trees. The young ones don't get hit. And we're keeping our fingers crossed that maybe there'll be some great adaptation, either with the beetle <laughs> or with the... Uh, you know, the trees themselves. And and the whole process is fascinating, again, from a soil food web perspective. These beetles may be bringing in fungus into the tree, helping the fungus grow. You know, it's just, the whole thing is just incredible stuff. So it's at least of curiosity and science nature. It's, it's, it's got something. You might also find that the beetle becomes food for something that hasn't eaten it yet. You know, that will become delectable to a specific bird or other animal that may find it to be a good protein. Who knows? Yeah, with our luck, it'll you know? be a bear. bear. <laughs> it'll be bears okay, well, with that's, our luck. Anyway. That's true too, yeah. Well, in the conversation uh, that you're having, Jeff, with other forestry yeah. Yeah. and arborist professionals, is there opposition to bringing in species 100 or 200 miles south of you? I guess throughout Canada could... Yeah, the problem is you go there and it's the same species. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that's the problem. I mean, we'd have to go thousands of miles. It, it, so it's the same species. We've had some real disasters. We brought in some trees that have spread and taken over riparian areas. And so we're, we're very careful about it. We want to be, we want to make sure that it makes sense. And the government agencies are paying a lot of attention to it. It's, I always like to tell people, you know, you have a cooperative extension service. This is one of the great uses of your tax dollars. And we're getting good use of our tax dollars with the people studying this particular problem. And the areas, all the areas have been mapped, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we do worry about fire, which, of course, is the ultimate cleanser. Uh, we'll all be gardening differently if there's a gigantic fire in the Anchorage area, that's for sure. But uh, we got our fingers crossed. And, and we're removing the trees. It's, 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 it's been quite a cultural change. The tree companies have proliferated. They've got different equipment because these are different kinds of things than they were normally dealing with. It's not cheap to drop a big tree. You know, it can cost a thousand bucks to get it hauled away with all the branches and everything else. We've discovered that if you advertise on Facebook, there are any number of people who will run over to your house with their gigantic chainsaws and cut the wood for themselves because they're burning the wood. I'm not sure that's a good thing either all winter long and having wood smoke everywhere. But it's been a fascinating, unifying conversation. Everybody has one of these dead trees. Everybody talks to each other about it. How are we going to deal with it? And I think it's elevated the science mentality in Alaska a little bit. Are you using any of those those dead trees for urban wood as we are here in southeastern Pennsylvania? Yeah, you know, some people, these particular trees, yeah, some people are using making lumber out of it. Uh, some people are doing shugel, uh, you know, trying to Yeah, culture. Um, yeah. A lot of work. A lot of work with a big tree. Let me just put it that oh, way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, a lot of it just, it's it's riddled. Uh, and, uh, you know, it takes a rare person who wants to cut it up and, and make flooring out of it with all the little markings from the beetles and whatnot, but I'm sure people right. are doing it. Well, you have also a lot of books that you've written on mycorrhiza mm -hmm. and rhizophagy, and you've actually been put yeah. on the global stage because of it. And, you know, how, mm. how did you actually kind of get that first book out there and, what was, yeah. you know, Oof. we know that you're involved in organics, but really wh what took you to that place? Well, what took me to that place was Dr. Elaine Ingham, obviously. I mean, right. it's really her, her story. I wrote the book. I submitted it to Timber Press. I wrote it as sort of a, a cartoon book. 
because I thought, well, gee, that's how people will understand microbes. And I gave it to a, the guy at Timber on a garden writers conference and he read it in front of me. And he, he said to me, you know, you dumb this down. We don't, we don't do that with our books. We smart them up. So if you smart this up, we'll publish. So I rewrote it. They published the book and it was called A Organic Gardener's Guide to the Soil Food Web because they'd never heard of it. They didn't know whether it was really truthful. They made me get validation from an independent academic authority. Uh, and then they called it A Organic Gardeners. I was the gardener, the A. Oh. Six months later, when they were on their, you know, umpteenth printing all of a sudden, they changed the title to The Organic Gardener's Guide. And that was the beginning of this teeming series. And, and the book was, was really fun to write because I wrote it for myself. I had no idea, you know, how to really understand the soil food web. I had to, I'm an attorney, so I'm not that intelligent. I had to dumb it down to my level. And apparently my level is about the same as everybody else's level. And so the book sold like crazy. It introduced the soil food web. I remember being at the garden writers. I remember asking garden writers whether any, how many knew what a mycorrhizal fungi was at a meeting in Bellevue, Washington, and not one garden writer knew what a mycorrhizal fungi was. Today, you know, again, I think today everybody's organic in our organization. I mean, it's just amazing what has happened. Not me. It wasn't because of me. It's just the science was there and it was just, it's like geometry. It just fits together. It's irrefutable. And if, and if you don't believe it, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. It's interesting uh, on the flip side, or at least in another sector of horticulture, Jeff, is where I'm coming from as a commercial arborist, although recently mm-hmm. retired. And so when we're up against emerald ash borer, which you know has been from the Mississippi and moving yeah. east for the past decade, you know, we did have- And moving to get, west too, I might add. I'm yeah. sure it is. Then we do fall back on traditional heavy mm-hmm. chemicals. Now, the only yeah. upside- which I was comfortable doing was it was trunk injection technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. we didn't really have too many other options. We didn't have options organically to to treat emerald ash borer. So I I did, even though I went through a training and got to work with Elaine and got this credential from the Northeastern Organic Farmers Association as an accredited land care professional, Mm -hmm. I knew that I was never going to be 100% organic. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously we have to be. I guess we have to be tolerant. I won't yell at you, but ultimately, that 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 beetle is going to win. I hate to say it. Ultimately, yeah. it's going to win, and you know we don't like to admit that. I mean, particularly as gardeners, we think we're in control. We don't we don't think the plant's in control. And in fact, if you're if you're a soil food web gardener, you let the plant be in control, and it it really can do some amazing things. Uh, yeah. Uh, which, which is why, you know, so so the original the original book, Teaming with Microbes, was how the soil food web works. Photosynthesis, you get exudate strip out of the roots. The roots attract bacteria and fungi. The bacteria and fungi attract protozoa, which you studied in high school, paramecium's amoebas, uh, nematodes, which are true worms. They eat the bacteria and fungi, poop out the excess which turns out to be nutrients in plant usable form. They have the right charge on them so that they can go into the plant. So the second book I wrote was, gee, okay, now we know where the nutrients come from. How do they get in the plant? How do plants eat? 
and it really sort of blew my mind. Nobody asked for that book. I wrote it uh, called Teeming with Nutrients. You know, and what happens to these nutrients when they get inside? I mean, it is inside the cells, just simply incredible. And then mycorrhizal fungi came along as a popular thing. We were able to start to produce them in a lab and you could sell them. And so that added another branch to the soil food web because some of the fungi that's attracted by the exudate goes into the plant, in between the cells, transfers for those exudates, nutrients that it brings in from the soil. All right, so that was an interesting addition to the soil food web. Uh, sure. And you could see it with a normal microscopy. You could see it with Elaine's microscopy, Dr. Michael Amaranthus and whatnot. You could, you could see them. And of course, we learned a lot about mycorrhizal fungi, which are important in some situations. They're pretty ubiquitous. But if you're like an Alaskan and you're growing stuff indoors to start it and then move it outdoors, Adding mycorrhizal fungi at that stage, boy, it makes so much sense. And then I was introduced to this new new concept called rhizophagy, which was discovered in Australia around 2010. The people who were doing the study on it, they saw bacteria going into uh, root cells, and they called it rhizophagy, you know, root eating. And they ran out of funding. The studies were picked up by a, a gentleman named Dr. James White at Rutgers University. And he has developed with his students the model of rhizophagy, which is sort of the analog for bacteria of the mycorrhizal fungi that don't get eaten, but instead form these mycorrhizae. So what happens is some of the bacteria, they're attached to the rhizosphere, to the roots, and they move into, the plant allows them to move into the plant meristem cells at the root. The best way to think about this is to think of a standard tofu package. You've got that white plastic outside. That's the plant meristem cell wall. It's very thin. And you've got bacteria that break through that cell wall and end up in the paraplasmic space in the cell. That's the water area around the tofu itself. Uh, and they're in this paraplasmic space and they're and they're they're multiplying every 20 minutes, but when they move in, the plant goes, hmm, and sprays them with something called a ROS, a reactive oxygen series, ROS. And the ROS strips off the bacterial cell wall and the nutrients that are in that bacterial cell wall are internally absorbed by the plant root and feed the plant. That's the beginning of the rhizophagy cycle. They're multiplying every 20 minutes. They don't have a cell wall. They're probably multiplying even faster. And in order to weaken the spray that removed their cell wall, the bacteria spray back mm. and they produce two phytohormones. They produce ethylene, which causes the cell to stretch. So they're they're moving around and the cell is stretching because the ethylene is being cycled around. And eventually, they also produce nitrite, which gets converted to nitrate in order to weaken the ROS. And this is also feeding the plant. It's actually nitrogen fixation occurring by these bacteria inside that little water space in the tofu package they're fixing nitrogen. They don't need to form a nodule like rhizobia do. These are just rhizophagy bacteria, endophytic bacteria. They're inside. So they multiply, multiply. They're fixing nitrogen. They've been stripped out. They're feeding the plant. And then they get too many of them. And they back up against the cell wall, the plant cell wall. 
and the ethylene causes a bulge, a tube to form from that cell wall. And the tube forms. And if you and I were looking at that tube and we didn't know what we were looking at, we'd say, oh, there's the root hairs. Sure enough, these bacteria cause root hairs to form. If you have a plant that doesn't have bacteria, you don't get root hairs. What? Wow. Anyway, they form the, this little tube and they, they're pushed into it by a little tidal wave of, of cytoplasmic energy and they pushed into it and they continue to multiply and they blow out of the tip of the root hair as it's growing, maybe two or three or four times returning these wallless bacteria back into the soil where they grow back their cell wall and then two or three days later go back in and repeat the cycle again in a new meristem root cell. Wow! So Elaine Ingham's version of the soil food web, the plant was a farmer. Put the exudates out, raised the crop, harvested the crop, took it in. Under Dr. White's addition, the plant is also a rancher. It takes in the sheep, takes off the wool, maybe eats a lamb chop or two, puts the sheep back out into the pasture. They regrow their wool and they come back in again and repeat the process. It's just a beautiful thing. And since you're a tree, it's not just little plants, trees. Any plant that has a root hair is undergoing rhizophagy. Now, you may hear it pronounced differently. And the reason you hear it pronounced differently, I believe, is because you're hearing an Australian pronunciation. We pronounce it <laughs> rhizophagy. Uh, and it is absolutely fascinating. And, and, it, and it caused me to write a, a fourth book, Teeming with uh, Bacteria, because these rhizophagy bacteria can supply up to 40% and maybe even more of the nitrogen that your plant uses. Wow. And we didn't even know about it. And then even more important, they're endophytic bacteria. They're living inside uh, plants. They're living inside algae. Al- some algae ends up inside uh, the, and, and the plant will strip off the bacteria from the algae and use that for nutrients. But there are endophytic bacteria that sneak into the plant in other areas, like through a crack in a root. A root when a root forms, comes off the main root, you get these little cracks and the bacteria can move in there. Sometimes they move even in through stomata. And these bacteria produce phytohormones. And so they help the plant do lots of things and they've evolved with a plant. It's not normal for a plant to take in a bacteria. Usually they fight them off but they've evolved to let certain ones in because they are mutually helpful. They help the plant, and in return, the bacterium gets a place where it doesn't have as much competition. Maybe it has nutrient available, and so it's a mutually satisfying relationship. And eventually, these bacteria get caught up in the flower and then in the seed itself. And so the seed contains these endophytic bacteria And when you put the seed in the ground and it germinates, the bacteria help the germination process. They hop off the seed and they populate the soil with the right kind of bacteria for that particular plant. So if you take a 400-year-old strain of corn and plant that strain of corn today, it has the same bacteria that it had 400 years ago. And it's not the same bacteria that a 200-year-old strain of corn has. It's unique. So it's a whole new area of 
soil food web science that we're trying to figure out how do we use. And so there's certain bacteria that you can add into the system that end up as rhizophagy bacteria. Uh, you can add in these uh, algae products that you can buy. Some of them are actually medicinal for humans and the plant will strip the bacteria off of that. It's just, it's really cool and exciting. And the photographs, because it's a new kind of microscopy, blow my mind. And they'll blow your mind too. And the staining is incredible. I highly encourage people to take a look at rhizophagy. Years ago, I was working with a company that was, they were one of the very first to sell liquid compost tea mm -hmm. to spray on the surface of the leaves mm -hmm. on a plant yeah. to protect it from disease. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people poo-pooed it, poo-pooed it. And what they discovered was that there was something in the, the compost tea that was helping the plant to fight diseases. And when you said a bacteria can go into the stomata, that made perfect sense because there's going to be bacteria in compost tea. Right. Um, and, right. and definitely, maybe not necessarily that bacteria for that particular plant, but if the right bacteria is in the mix, then it could really make a difference for that plant. Or if the right bacteria is already on the plant and you put the mix in and it contains food. Compost tea is very controversial. You know, I maintained that I converted my lawn, which was rock hard, never had a never had a worm, and I never saw a bird on. In one season, using compost tea every week, uh, it became spongy and soft, and the soil was, started to fill up with worms, and I got birds, and, and I would do experiments, and I would grow controls without compost tea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There have been very few because of the nature of compost. You know, it's a very biodiverse. There have been very few uh, studies that have really proven the worth of compost tea. What we do know is that the foods that you feed work quite well. So the humic acids and, the, and et cetera. And people are beginning to take a look at compost extracts as opposed to compost tea, where they take the compost, they put it into a, a bag and squeeze it for 15 minutes in water. And that's that may be a little better than compost tea. I don't know. I still like compost tea, but I recognize there is a dearth of scientific validation for it, even though I think it works. How crazy is that? I, you know, kind of walk by the stream every day and that that stream, when, when the fall comes, the leaves fall in it and the color of the stream changes from a sure. clear to a dark brown. And right. you can't tell me that that's not compost tea because it is. And it's yeah. going downstream. And they were saying that certain bivalves need leaves to help them at the entrances of of bays in bay areas. Oh. And I thought that, well, that's really interesting um, that yeah. our leaves are very important for that in, this, in the right. water. But right. all of this is interconnected and we may ignore something, but I don't think things are here just for naught. They're, oh, yeah. they're not here oh, just no. for, you know, just for fun because nature is not that way, you know? No, it's not. And what falls down from a tree is supposed to fall down from a tree. That's, that's you know, what happens is that's the law of return. We come along and, and we take the apples off the tree, we rake the leaves up, and then we wonder why the tree is not looking that healthy because it's, you know, then we wonder why we have to feed the tree. Yeah, you know, we're not really feeding the tree. We're feeding the microbes under my system. They in turn feed the tree, but, you know, we break the law of return. And so yes. we should be using mulches. And whether we believe in compost tea or not, compost 
clearly works. Compost right. has all of the fertilizer bags, the, the bacteria and the, and the uh, fungi, and the spreaders, nematodes and protozoa, that you could ever possibly want. And so using compost is the answer for anybody's real problems. It's, you know, compost tea is great, maybe, but compost is great, definitely. No question about it. Mm-hmm. Hundreds and Absolutely. hundreds of studies. I wanted to find out. Now, we talked about all this, and do you encourage your, your readers to plant trees, and do you have any methodology behind encouraging your readers and, and connecting that with the mycorrhiza that you're talking about? Yeah, I do. I tell people uh, in Alaska that we should be planting native trees. Uh, our spruce is the one, but the other one is birch. We have a tremendous number of birch trees. And so, so far, we haven't had a real big problem with birches and so, other than aphids. And so people definitely, definitely plant trees. Our neighborhoods are very much like other suburban, new suburban neighborhoods where the contractor comes in, takes the soil out, you know, maybe plants one tree uh, mistakenly stakes that tree up with three wires, you know, so that it, it can't adjust to the wind. So people have to plant trees. We need trees. And we need trees for no other reason because we need the birds and we want the moose and all the wildlife that come, come along associated with it. Generally, I tell people to use mycorrhizal fungi when they're transplanting. You probably don't need to add mycorrhizal fungi when you plant a tree. There is the ectomycorrhizal and the endomycorrhizal that that particular tree will need in the soil. It doesn't hurt. It's not that expensive, and it certainly can help. But if you're growing something from seed, again, and transplant it, and you add the mycorrhizal fungi, there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing the same thing with the trees as well. So, And I, I tell people if they go to a nursery and they can't find mycorrhizal fungi, go to a different nursery because the one you're going to is outdated. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. I know they're even recommending the, the bacteria, um, like um, bumper crop. There's a, there's a product called bumper crop that um, mm-hmm. one of the garden centers around here says, if you don't buy bumper crop with the plants that you're buying, I can't, we won't guarantee it because wow. it, has, it has a really good mix in it. So I think that's ah. pretty telling too. So Yeah, it is. It is. And, and nurseries are beginning, yeah, around the country. I visit nurseries wherever I go and they're, they're all becoming... Very heavily organic. If, if not fully organic, they have a little organic section. Heck, our, our botanical garden, the, the uh, Alaska Botanical Garden, we're an organic botanical garden. We were the first ones in the country. People don't even wear bug spray. You know, you can't, you're not supposed to spray bug spray. Uh, that's how organic we're trying to be. And it's, and it's purposeful. We live in a place, Alaska, that's, that's as pristine as it's going to get. Not every stream in Alaska has Roundup in it yet. Glyphosate hasn't appeared everywhere. Incidentally, the glyphosate, let me let me return back to rhizophasy for a second. Glyphosate really messes up that rhizophasy cycle. The process which glyphosate attacks, the I'm trying to remember it's the Siskiyou cycle. Anyway, we don't have that cycle. That's why they say it's safe for us to be around it and to be exposed to it. But bacteria have the exact same cycle, and it disrupts the bacterial cycle just like it kills the plant cycle by killing the plant. And so you end up with uh, 40% less nitrogen, for example, in the, as a result of destroying those rasophagy bacteria. And if you're destroying the rasophagy bacteria, you're also destroying those endophytic bacteria that are not endophytic, but will become endophytic once they move into the plant. So there's 
really a very interesting series of studies that was just completed really downs on glyphosate. Well, that makes perfect sense because if people are spraying it, they, if they breathe it in by accident, their bacteria is going to be affected as well. Their physical body's exactly. bacteria. Or if, or if they eat or it. Or if you eat it. It's, yeah. So what happens when you eat wheat? That has it. Yeah. Because it affects wheat your, is it, dry. Your, That's right. your human biome, the bacteria on your human. Hello, Crohn's. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Exactly. The, everything's interconnected. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a. Wow. It is interconnected. And of course, uh, you know, trees and gardening are at the base of it all. <laughs> so it's fun. It's fun, though. It's great stuff. Uh, we, we, you know, incidentally, we started a, a podcast just a couple, three, four weeks ago. It's called Teaming with Microbes. And we're going to really just push on just the science if we can. I don't know if you read a book called, boy, I'm getting way off, Lessons in Chemistry. It's about a woman chemist who basically is discriminated against, even though she's a terrific chemist because she's a woman. You know, scientists don't, they, they, they treated her terribly. So she ended up with a television show uh, teaching mm. cooking. But she taught it from a chemistry perspective oh. uh, and, and wisened it up instead of dumbed it down. And that's what we're going to try to do in this podcast. This is all stuff people need to know. And in, in our country, we're told what we need to know by academics. And sometimes it's not what we really need to know. We don't need to know about dinosaurs. You know, we need to know about microbes. Uh, little kids can tell you the name of every single dinosaur. They can spell words that I can't even begin to pronounce. And yet they couldn't tell you what E. coli was or what a fungi looked like or anything else. Well, forget the dinosaurs. Let's start studying something that's useful like microbes and then we'll make people healthier and better gardeners. The one thing we want to leave a little time to talk to you about such a great concept and initiative on your part is your uh, plant a row for the hungry. And it's uh, been a mission of yours mm -hmm. for years. Tell us about the inspiration and how that's working out. Yeah, I choke up. <laughs> um, yeah, I was in. Uh, I used to be uh, head of a big company that was had to go to Washington D.C. and do a lot of lobbying. Uh, and I, I was down in Washington D.C. one particular week where it was the coldest week they'd ever had in Washington D.C. They shut the airport down. It was so cold. Restaurants were only open for non-residents you could you know it was just this crazy thing and it was really cold and i remember one night going to dinner with my hands in my pocket because it was so cold wrapped around a bunch of coins in my pocket and a guy came up to me and he said i'm really hungry can you give me some money for food and they tell you in washington dc there's posters everywhere they say don't give money we feed people we take care of them don't you give them panhandling money and so I didn't. And I continued on. I went to the Red Sage restaurant. I had a, an expense account meal with, with my uh, one of my local Washington lawyers and a uh, uh, bottle of wine, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I went back and the guy was still out there. And he said, I really want to eat. Come, You can come and watch me. And I didn't give him the money. And I, I went back to my fancy room at the Willard Hotel. I'd been going so many times. I had a suite and, and I didn't have a little candy on my pillow. I had a box of candy, a uh, fruit basket, wine. And I did not sleep that night. Whew. It was Scrooge. You know, my dad came and said, you piece of crap. What? are you thinking? I mean, you know, my mother came to visit me. I mean, it was awful. And so the next morning I got up and I tried to find the guy. I ran all over the place. It was freezing out. I, and and uh, that afternoon they opened the airport and I got out. I'm sitting up in first class and I'm eating steak and zucchini 
and I got to write a column because I have I'm America's longest running garden columnist. I never miss a column. And so I'm thinking, oh, I'll write, I'll write about the joke about, you know, you leave zucchini in your car. And you're not supposed to do that at night in Wisconsin because if you do, they break your, the, you, oh, you're not supposed to leave your car oh, yeah. out on the street in Wisconsin at night. Because if you do, zucchini. they'll, uh, they'll yeah. fill it up with zucchini. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the joke. <laughs> so, so, but, but it occurred to me because I really hadn't slept and I was just so upset at myself for being so inhuman uh, that maybe I would ask my readers to help, uh, to help assuage my conscience. And with, and I told the story and I asked them to donate food that they grew to Beans Cafe, our local soup kitchen. Uh, and it was a very successful program. And eventually the garden writers came up and I mentioned the program to the garden writers and we adopted it as a national program, Plant a Row for the Hungry. And the way it works is you grow the food. You, the gardener, take that food to where it's going to be used, a food bank, a church, a synagogue, a neighbor, wherever it's going to be used. You don't have any government money. Nothing slips from the lip to the cup or from the cup to the lip or whatever it is. It's just a a person-to-person effort. And we used to keep track of the numbers at at the garden writers. People would report how much they collected. And it's, it's just one of those things that everybody can do. It's so easy to do. Lots of people do it. And I'm hoping anybody that's listening to this show, one plant, one row, it doesn't make a difference. If you don't grow vegetables and fruits and whatnot to give away, you know, there's nothing wrong with flowers for the spirit. But plant one row to feed the hungry and and we can help take care of a a problem that we know exists. We know how many millions and millions and millions of people are going to bed hungry every night and they don't need to. We can be growing food. So so people are using this program in botanical gardens, uh, soup kitchens of established gardens, prisons of established gardens. Uh, uh, one of my favorites, Fish and Wildlife Office in Washington, D.C., set up a par garden. They go out and work at lunchtime. It's really, it's really a terrific thing. And some nurseries have set up as centers where you can bring your food in. They will then make sure that it gets distributed to the right people. And it's become an integral part of their nursery programs because the employees just take to it. So, you know, it's just one of those great win-win things. Everybody wins and you feel good about it. Because you're doing something good. What a great story. Yeah, thank you. For and that. something good came out of something bad. Something good always comes out of something bad. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that, that in, in this country and in Canada, too, they've adopted it in Canada. I've gotten efforts from uh, Australia, uh, England. You know, people, people look at this program and it's, it's, you know, again, so easy to do. So easy to do and doesn't cost anything. But of course, it, it helps to have a little platform and I can write my column and tell people they need to do it. So, Well, I need to ask one more time as we kind of close out our time with you, Jeff. Am I understanding correctly that Anchorage uh, or Metropolitan Anchorage has a little bit of a monoculture and it's birch and it's spruce or? Yes. Yes. Wow. We've okay. a big monoculture. Birch, spruce. We have cottonwood. Uh, we only have about four or five trees that really are, proliferate all over the place. Okay. Uh, cottonwoods are a terrible tree. Uh, they are weak and they drop branches. And oh my God, the cotton that they can drop is phenomenal. Uh, uh, very flammable, by the way. I love <laughs> them, by the way. Can I go on record as saying I love cottonwoods? Go ahead. 
They're interesting because they 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 people use them for make cellos and violins. And uh, what we yeah. do in Anchorage is the cotton the cotton gets so thick. I have a very long driveway, and it, it it accumulates at the edges of the driveway. And I'll have my son up at the top of the driveway, and I'll light it. Oh. <laughs> and it goes all the way up. <laughs> they used it. They used it during the Civil War as the you know bat batten, I guess for for artillery and bullets and whatnot. So wow. interesting. Interesting that cottonwood stuff, but oh god, do we have it everywhere? But yeah, we have a monoculture. Uh, you know, I think a lot of places that are in the uh, the high latitude, you know, the ends of the earth have a monoculture. Part of that has to do with succession, and uh, it's 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 really quite different than it is, say, in New York or or you know, Illinois. The lower forty-eight, yeah. yeah, hundreds of miles, same kind of tree. So how do we ask you what is your favorite tree? <laughs> yeah. You know, I is this where I, I say an artificial Christmas tree? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no. We would accept it. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, uh, my favorite tree, I love magnolia. I love metasequoia. There you go. My father had one of the first metasequoias. He got, got, got from the New York Botanical Garden. Ooh, that's a story. People have tried to grow them in acres. They last for a little while. So so yeah, I mean, I think about introducing trees all the time, but I don't I don't often do it. Uh, nut tree here and there, I might want to try just to see what happens. But again, it's a big right. worry about whether these things are spread and cause some kind of a problem. Ooh, sure, I don't want to be responsible for that. No. Sure. Well, we certainly appreciate you for all that you have done and for you being on our podcast this week. We we value your work and your continued work. Your long-running column, the longest in our country. This is where I break down and cry. (laughs) (laughs) And we continue continue to wish you much success, Jeff, because you deserve it. You have done so much for not only our Garden Communicators organization, but also globally for gardeners in, in in their home gardens. So we appreciate that. You're, you're too good of a friend. You're too kind. Uh, but, I, but I thank you for that. Uh, indeed. Thank you so much, Jeff. Good luck with the podcast as well. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And I'll be watching and listening to yours. That's for sure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.